Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUD Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler. I am the founder and CEO of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Eric. Uh, it's very exciting to be joining you for this episode, and, and I'm delighted to be introducing our guest, Professor Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler is the Charles Walgreen Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And of course, he's best known as both the 2017 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences and as the co-author with Cass Sunstein of the global bestseller, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness um, from 2008, which outlines how the concepts of behavioral economics can be used to address many of society's major challenges. Uh, Professor Thaler studies behavioral economics and finance, as well as the psychology of decision-making. And in fact, he's the author of six books, including his most recent uh, called Nudge, the Final Edition, and also many, many uh, numerous academic articles. And I'm also pleased to say as a side note that he is originally from my own home state of New Jersey. Welcome, Professor Thaler. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to be here. Professor, we are uh, very excited to speak with you. And to start, we would like to hear a bit about your personal journey. Can you tell us about how you came to be interested in economics and human decision making. We are especially interested to know more about your famous uh, list of anomalies. And I have this book, which was uh, Ah. very important. Yeah. Uh, So interestingly enough, that book, Eric's holding up, a copy of my first book uh, called The Winner's Curse, which has recently gone out of print. And the publisher has asked me to create a new edition. And I've invited a young colleague of mine, Alex Emus, a brilliant young behavioral economist, uh, to do it with me. So we're just starting to think about uh, the, that, that book was written when uh, Alex was in kindergarten. So um, it, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting perspective of the old man and the, and the, the youngster. Um, but I think the list you're referring to was a, a much earlier list when I was a, a graduate student and assistant professor. And uh, the things I was learning in school didn't line up with uh, what I saw in life. And simple things like, uh, you know, economists dictum to ignore sunk costs. And 
you know, I have this now famous story of a friend of mine and I had tickets to some basketball game in Buffalo, and we were living in Rochester, and there was a big blizzard. And we had been given these tickets, and we decided very sensibly not to try to go to this game. But my friend Jeffrey said, but if we had paid for those tickets, we would be going. And, you know, this, there's nothing surprising about that story unless you're an economist. And, um, you know, a, a dear friend of mine, Tom Gilovich, the brilliant psychologist from Cornell, uh, ha- often tells me that he never ceases to be amazed by the number of convenient null hypotheses that the economics discipline has given me. So showing that people don't ignore sunk costs is like is like showing people that they uh, are absent-minded. Uh, you know, it it wouldn't surprise your mother, but. Um, but it was heresy to economists. So I started accumulating a list of of these stories, and gradually the stories got categorized. So there were sunk cost stories and opportunity cost stories and self-control stories. And um, that's really how it all began, is me staring at that list, trying to make sense of it, and then... Uh, my big discovery, my, I, I say my greatest discovery, was discovering two Israeli psychologists called Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Now, some people, including them, claim they existed even before I discovered them. But, you know, Columbus is said to have discovered America. I discovered Kahneman and Tversky for the field of economics. And um, they gave me their writing. Their, this is before prospect theory. Their early writing on, on judgment gave me the essential idea of behavioral economics, which is the idea of systematic bias. So, you know, uh, many people had talked about limited information processing capabilities. I think most famously Herb Simon and his notion of bounded rationality. But economists, economists frankly didn't pay any attention to Herb Simon. He won a Nobel Prize in economics, so he impressed some Swedes. But uh, the economics profession basically ignored him. And I, I think the reason they were able to do that is they said, okay, if people make mistakes, that's fine. If, if they're random, then we add it to the error term and who cares? We go back to business. And as the great Chicago economist Milton Friedman used to say, they behave as if they're optimizing. And what Amos and Danny showed is, no, they're not behaving as if they're optimizing. The, the errors are systematic and predictable. 
And if people are making predictable errors, then the models are predictably wrong. And that insight um, that I got from reading their papers, maybe in 1976, uh, and then spending a year with them when they came to Stanford to visit the United States for a year, and I made it my business to, I stalked them basically, and uh, made it my business to be there that year as well. Um, so that's where it all began. Okay, great. And I encourage our listener who want to know more to read Misbehaving because you explain the full story and it is really uh, very uh, exciting. It is a, a story for me of a friendship between Amos and Danny and after between you and, uh, and Danny and Cass after. So it's very uh, interesting, I think, to, to see it is a, a story of uh, friendship like Michael Lewis uh, described in his uh, wonderful book too. And science is also a question of human beings. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time with Michael Lewis when he was writing that book. And uh, I took him to a couple of academic conferences, uh, uh, sort of as anthropology, one uh, meeting of the Society of Judgment and Decision-Making. And uh, I said, look, this is what, this is what we do. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, that's a wonderful book as well. So, um, did you have any mentor, except or in addition to uh, Danny and uh, and uh, Amos, that uh, had a strong influence on you? Um, not really. Um, and there was there was really no role model. That, I think that was the biggest obstacle. Um, so uh, Kahneman and Tversky were, were inspiration, and they provided me with some very important insights, but they were psychologists. And even though Prospect Theory was published in a fancy economics journal, They never pretended to be economists and didn't didn't really know much about economics. Uh, that year we spent together at Stanford, a lot of it was me teaching them economics and them teaching me psychology. But um, no, the, and, and so I, I was a very slow starter, and and part of it was just figuring out what a behavioral economics paper would look like. And, uh, you know, my first paper, the paper I published in 1980, uh, in a sense, the entire field is there. Uh, there uh, but, but it's a paper that got rejected about eight times. So it, 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 didn't, it didn't constitute science. 
uh, at least according to um, journal editors. So slowly but surely, I had to figure out how to write economics papers. And um, uh, kind of a, a lucky break, I had a student, a Belgian student, Werner de Bont, who was interested in doing finance. And he and I wrote a paper on finance that created a big controversy in finance. And, and that was very fortunate uh, because it turned out to be easy to write papers in finance. And, and, and it, it, there's a, 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 something interesting about that because financial markets are the place economists thought it was least likely that you would find any evidence of misbehavior, to use my term. And that's because the markets are so good. And, you know, there's billions of dollars at stake. So if you're making some mistake in your investing, there's all, all kinds of people ready to pounce. And so... You know, this first paper that DeBont and I wrote uh, based on his thesis, we just showed that stocks that went down the most over a three to five year period outperformed the market and stocks that went up the most underperformed. Now, that just sounds like simple mean reversion. You know, again, what what's the surprise in that? Well, that's a surprise because the first principle of the efficient market hypothesis is you can't predict the future from the past. And that's what we were doing in the simplest possible way. We just ranked. We ranked the stocks, uh, you know, um, and then tracked what happened afterwards. Uh, an army of graduate students at the University of Chicago, where where I now work, uh, was given the task of finding our programming error because they knew this result was impossible. And so I later went on to write, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 papers in finance. And... And the reason why it was easy to write papers in finance is they have fantastic data. Daily stock prices going back to 1926. Um, and very well specified null hypotheses. Uh, you know, to use, refer back to Tom Gilovich's line. So... You know, you can't predict the future from the past. Okay, that's that's testable. And there were lots of those. So uh, I, I think my publication track record was best in finance in the sense that they those papers were the easiest to get accepted. 
and it's because you could write a paper. There's like a standard format, and um, if you did, if you used the appropriate methods and asked an interesting question, they would take it. Whereas in other branches of economics, they just thought that this was an inappropriate question to be asking. And so, you know, uh, with my friend Herr Schaeffer and I wrote a couple papers on the economics of self-control. Oh, God, getting those accepted was a bloody war. So, and then, you know, there, there were experimental papers. The... The, the problem with running experiments, and of course, from Amos and Danny, I, I was inspired to, to run experiments, and then Danny and I did run some experiments. But most economists didn't think experimental methods were appropriate. And um, they thought so because they thought e the stakes were too low, and uh, there weren't opportunities for learning. And, um, and in fact, the, the famous Muggs experiment that Kahneman and Jack Knetch and I ran, um, I should say what that experiment is. We, it's very simple. We went into a classroom and gave half the people in the classroom a Cornell in university coffee mug and half didn't get a mug and then we had a market and the people who had mugs could sell them and people who didn't have mugs could buy them and the people who got the mugs didn't want to give them up and the people who didn't have mugs didn't much want to buy them and buying prices were about half of selling prices so the reason why we wrote that paper was that the Lord High Masters of Experimental Economics at that time, which were Vernon Smith and Charlie Plott, um, said that the previous experiments we had run didn't have learning, didn't have markets. So we said, okay, we'll run experiments with learning and markets. And, of course, neither of those things mattered. But... It's still, the, it's still the case that field experiments now are acceptable form of, of research. Um, but laboratory experiments are still a bit suspect. And one, one, uh, another thing that's missing from those and the reason why I never wrote an experimental paper about finance is in an experiment, there's no role for the arbitrageurs. Right? So, you know, suppose you ran an experiment, and in the experiment, you created a new kind of currency. Let's call it Bitcoin. And it goes crazy. No one would believe, well, that, they would say that couldn't happen in the real world because the smart money would 
would sell short. And anybody who was selling Bitcoin short now is broke. Uh, so, so yeah, um, it, this, this all takes a lot of, you know, I was, I've been at this for decades. So, uh, it took a long time to figure out w what would convince people that one, what would. Thanks, Professor. Maybe we could uh, talk about uh, the present and, uh, and nudge. Uh, the final edition, Scott. Sure, sure. So if we jump ahead to the present, uh, I, we know that you, you know, you recently partnered again with Cass Sunstein to revisit and update um, your most famous work together. And yeah, and we're interested to hear a little bit about what motivated you to create Nudge, the final edition. And I thought maybe you could speak to some of the updates that you feel most strongly and passionately about. Sure. So very appropriately, we were nudged to do this. Um, the original publisher, nobody wanted to publish this book. And the, the original publisher was an academic publisher that didn't really believe in marketing. And so after a year we convinced them to sell the paperback rights to Penguin, uh, you know, a major uh, publisher. And that's when the book became a bestseller. And they had a 10-year contract. And that had expired. And nobody noticed. So... Uh, we got an email saying, <clears throat> oh, by the way, the paperback contract has expired and Penguin would wonders whether you might like to write an, a new chapter or a new preface or something. So this is April 2020. And, uh, you know, we're all basically locked in our homes with not that much to do. And uh, both of us managed to find a copy of the book at home and started reading it. And you, you start to realize how much the world has changed since 2009. First of all, each of us had just bought our first smartphone while we were writing that book. Now, I was just on a little vacation uh, in Mexico. It's impossible to get around in this world without a smartphone, right? You go into a restaurant, if you can't, process a QR code, you're out of luck. And, and good luck booking your plane tickets, right? So, and, and you, you, you've got your uh, vaccination record on a QR code. We take all of this for granted. So, the, you know, it always seems like the world has changed a lot recently. But 
and th- maybe that's an illusion, but it's hard. It's hard to think of a decade that so much technological change happened. I mean, yes, the personal computer was a big deal, but having a personal computer in your pocket, whoo! And of course, social media, all all of this was really made possible uh, by the smartphone. And we have some uh, mention of the iPod. Remember those? Those cute little music-playing devices and saying how spiffy that is. You know, that just graded. And um, so, you know, we started fiddling. And um, ended up deciding, okay, there's nothing else to do. Why don't we just rewrite it? At least rewrite anything we thought needed rewriting. And one of the things we wanted to do was the, you know, we're two Americans. We had written an America-centric book. Um, and it became a global book. You know, I don't know how many translations there are, Uh, but uh, so we wanted to write a less U.S.-based book. And then there were a bunch of chapters that you just didn't need anymore. So we had what we thought was a very clever solution to the same-sex marriage problem, Um, which we still like. The idea was get the government out of the business of anything that's called a marriage, that they just create civil partnerships, Uh, you know, civil unions, we call them in the U.S., or domestic partnership, whatever, it would be a legal contract between two people, like a business partnership. There would be nothing religious about it. And if people wanted to use the word marriage, that would be private. And you could go to your church or your golf club or your pub and um, get married there and they could have whatever rules they wanted. So, obviously, just making same-sex marriage legal was better. <laughs> and uh, we didn't anticipate that in 2009, but we certainly didn't need that chapter anymore. Uh, and then there were other chapters that people just, I th- just didn't, I think, Many people just stopped reading. Uh, you know, I think you probably lose a certain percentage of the readers each chapter. <laughs> and it, I don't really want to see those data. Um, there are such data from Kindle of where the he- highlighting stops. But 
uh, a chapter that I think was greatly misunderstood, probably because people didn't think they needed to read it, they already knew what we stood, is on organ donations. So people assumed, since we like changing the default as one of our most powerful tools, they assumed that our best idea for uh, organ donations is to use what's called presumed consent. So make the default being an organ donor. It turns out, I mean, in the first version of the book, we didn't say that. When the paperback came out, we already realized people weren't getting the message. So we wrote a stronger version of this. But still, Wales and England switched from uh, an opt-in system to opt-out. And on Twitter, I would get congratulations. Hey, Thaler, look, another country did what you wanted. And I would, no, no, that's not what I wanted. So now, why don't we want that? You know, we, like everybody in the field, knows there's a very famous paper uh, by Eric Johnson and Dan Goldstein. Eric, I have known since he was a graduate student, so, and we're very good friends, and he has a recent book out on choice architecture. But um, in that book, they showed that in countries that make uh, organ donation the default, almost no one opts out. And they have this famous graph of Austria, 98% of people fail to opt out. In Germany, only 12% opt in. Voila. And the, 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 the problem with that is, and this is a, a theme that runs through much of the book, is changing the default you have to be careful what, what conclusions you reach from that because arriving at a certain state by default gets you to a different place than if you chose it. So, you know, we've known this from the very first paper on pension saving. They're, they're the most successful application of uh, of defaults is automatic enrollment in pensions. And the first paper showing this was written by Bridget Madrian and Dennis Shea. And they showed that if you automatically enroll people in the pension, signups within the first year go from 49% to 86%. It's a miracle. But in that paper, they also point out that, you know, you, if you default people into some 
into the plan. You have to default them into something specific. And in that company, they defaulted them into a 3% saving rate and into a very conservative investment strategy. Well, if you look at the before and after, many of the people, if, if there's a default, they just take it. it before, the most common choice for those who did enroll actively was to save 6% and to invest in a mix of stocks and bonds. So you were making some of the people who were active choosers worse off by automatically enrolling them into something else. Now, of course, they could override that, but they didn't. So what's the big lesson here is... The default is is a powerful tool, but there's what economists would call path dependence. How you get there matters. And I took a big, deep dive on the organ donation literature. Much of my pandemic life was spent reading papers on this topic. And... My reading of it is that if you make, uh, if you have an opt-out system, organs transplanted goes down by about 25%. Now, it's tricky to do the statistics on this. There aren't very many countries. The, the, that number I'm quoting, uses U.S. states as countries. Um, and, of course, many are bigger than, you know, California is the size of many countries. So, um, but uh, I, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that particular number. Um, it, it, it's also the case and this is true just within Europe, that if you switch to automatic to automatic enrollment to an opt-out system, live donations of kidneys goes down. Nobody quite knows why, but that... So it's just not that simple. Now, the irony of this is, as you know, the first nudge unit was in the UK and I was involved in that and at the first meeting when this unit was created um, the cabinet secretary a guy called Gus O'Donnell who's a big advocate now uh, there were a bunch of bureaucrats there who thought we should be doing bureaucratic things but instead, we decided to use what uh, Cass and I call prompted choice for England. And uh, 
Boris Johnson reversed that. Um, I don't think that's the worst of Boris Johnson's sins, but this is a this is a show about uh, nudging, so uh, we we won't go any further on that. So there the uh, there was lots of. Uh, Cleaning up and adding new research, and uh, my rule was we would only include a chapter if it was fun to write. And that I was the judge of whether it was fun to read. And uh, let's say there were there was not always unanimity, but 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 I had veto power. Well, you know, you mentioned that over this past 10 years plus, there's obviously been tremendous change in technology and some social norms. You mentioned gay marriage. Uh, There's obviously been an enormous change in the field of behavioral economics as well. And I was wondering if you could share some perspective on on how you feel the field has evolved since, you know, from from book one or uh, from the original nudge, perhaps to the, you know, to, to more recently Perhaps there have been things that have surprised you, I don't know, um, or maybe concerned or disappointed you? Well, let, let me say before I answer that, that um, there's a temptation for people in, in this field, meaning sort of the nudge branch of behavioral economics, to think of that's what behavioral economics is. And it's a speck on the field. If you open up any issue of the American Economic Review or the Quarterly Journal of Economics or any of the major economics publications, there are papers on behavioral economics. That's the big change. And and one aspect of that is Many of those papers are written by people who don't think of themselves as primarily behavioral economists. So just to pick one random example, a former colleague of mine here at Chicago is now at Stanford, Neil Mahoney, who's primarily a health economist, got interested in how people pay off their credit card debts. And people who have lots of credit card debts typically have three or four credit cards. And suppose you owe $2,000, $3,000, and $4,000 on three different cards. And you're not going to pay them all off because that's how you got all that debt. Uh, How much are you going to pay on each one? And let's suppose the interest rates are 24%, 20%, and 16%. Well, the smart thing to do would pay the minimum on all and pay down the most on the highest interest rate. Instead, what most people do is make payments proportional to the outstanding debt. A very nice behavioral economics paper written by a health economist and and colleagues because it's interesting. 
Um, so, uh, and there's lots of behavioral economics theory papers that uh, are incomprehensible to me, but uh, but economists like incomprehensible theory papers. So, uh, so the field can't really grow up without those. Um, you know, it, in this uh, sort of applied behavioral economics, and it really should be called behavioral science because it's not just economics. Um, and in fact, I wish there was more behavioral economics in the, in let's say the field of nudging. Um, you know, the obviously the headline news is that there are nudge units that are exploding around the world, including, including in France, uh, and uh, yeah, some somebody was counting, and there were over four hundred at last count, which is quite astonishing. I mean. Remember, we couldn't get this book published. So two million copies later, there are 400 nudge units. So that's amazing. A bit scary. You know, when, when there was one and they had five employees in London, I kind of knew what was going on. <laughs> then when one opened in the White House, I was pretty well informed about what they were doing. Obviously, I have no idea. So uh, it's great, um, but um, uh, I, you know, I, I can't say much about uh, the quality control um, because uh, I'm not there. Now, here's, I will say one thing. There's a, there's a paper that looks at a series of interventions by the U.S. nudge unit that was in the White House in the Obama administration. They actually were there during the previous administration, but I think they were more or less in hiding. Um, but what they find is that the interventions have reliable but small effect sizes, typically two or three percent. Now, um, the normally huge sample sizes, so the this is not data mining, right? The, the, these effects are real, but small. What should we take from that? My main take is that it reflects what things the nudge units are allowed to do. So, for example, when 
in the UK, when we were trying to do prompted, prompted choice for organ donations, um, the system had been set up to use the Department of Motor Vehicles. And in the UK, you almost never have to re renew your driver's license. So like in Illinois, you have to renew every three or four years. And they, if you are not an organ donor, they ask you. You can go 20 years in London and not ask you. And lots of people in London sensibly don't even have a driver's license. So one of the things we wanted to do is change the place at which you would do this. That's not the sort of thing that a nudge unit can do, right? There's big bureaucracy. And I thought it ought to be done somehow through the National Health Service. It's in the UK context would make a lot of sense because almost everybody interacts with it. You spend a lot of time waiting. So, you know, while you're waiting, would you like to fill out this form? Uh, and there can be somebody there to answer questions. Right? So, but that that's, uh, yeah, that's not something you can do. There was another example in the in the US they ran some experiments trying to increase in enrollment in the retirement plan for civilians in the military but they couldn't use automatic enrollment that they could they could vary the messaging in the letters they sent to people well, we know there's a there's a method that will get ninety percent, and if you only allow me to change the wording of the letters, and people aren't going to open the letter, then uh, even a two percent effect size is a small miracle. So, um, um, yeah, there are limits to what we can accomplish with nudging, um, and it will depend on. Um, on uh, the scope that the nudgers have. We, and I think the lesson from this is, this is something Cass strongly believes in. The, the best places to apply behavioral science in government is not in spe specific units. It should be in the departments. It has to be done by the people who can make changes. Or integrated. Yeah. And um, that, you know, in, especially uh, in uh, national governments, that, that's, that's complicated. And, and it's going to take a long time to, we, we, we need behavioral science experts scattered throughout the government. And, and maybe the role of a specific nudge unit would be in providing 
like a consulting service on best practices and how to test. But the, the main lesson I learned from my experience with nudge units is you have to really do a deep dive with the people who are running the programs. And they know what their problems are. You don't. Professor, we would like to uh, ask you, because uh, at the BVN unit, a good deal of uh, what we do involves introducing behavioral economics to private sector uh, organizations. So we are very interested in hearing your perspective on this, knowing that in the final edition you have written, we emphasize that the concepts and approach discussed here are fully applicable to the private sector. Yes, well, um, and, and I should add, for good and for bad. Right? So one of the things that is new in the f new and final edition, which of course is a commitment strategy, that there will never be another one. Sunstein doesn't necessarily buy into this, but I've told him if there's another edition, it will be posthumous. So, <coughs> well, presumably he would be alive. But, um, so, look, the private sector does choice architecture. And... Um, If you think of the companies that have grown the most since the book came out, what do they have in common? Well, they're mostly technology firms, but they're also very good at choice architecture. Let's make a list. Google, Apple, Amazon. Netflix, you can make your own list. They're all in the choice architecture business, right? Think about Amazon. You know, uh, they have every book and every book in print is for sale. If you went into a bookstore to and they have every book, you would run away, right? It would just give you a headache. So, so uh, you know, uh, there was this book by Barry Schwartz that came out around the same time as Nudge, who was kind of alarmed about how many choices there are. Uh, I'm not alarmed by the number of choices because we have good choice architecture. So if I go on to Netflix, am I going to complain that there are too many movies or too many shows to stream? No. Why? Well, first of all, it's easy to search. Second, they're very good at making recommendations. Now, People get all upset about artificial intelligence and algorithms. What they forget is 
you know, Amazon has, or Netflix, to use that, they have no interest in getting you to watch a movie you're going to hate. Right? They're not selling. It's a subscription. And if they convince you to start watching Squid Game and you don't like it, it does. They don't make any money off of that. Uh, on the contrary, if they make you bad recommendations, you maybe you'll switch to to some other service. The same with Amazon. If they recommend books that you hate, um, maybe you'll maybe you'll go back to your local bookshop where there was a guy who knows you and says. Oh, Eric, you know, there's a new book that you're going to love. I used, there was a wine shop I used to have here in Chicago that was just like that, a very small place, but the purveyor knew every bottle and every customer. So he was like a human algorithm. So, So... so, yes, the private sector is doing choice architecture. And, by the way, they're hiring lots and lots of people. The world's largest economics department is now at Amazon. They're the largest employer of Chicago MBA students. So, so yes, there's private there, – there's – Behavioral economics going on, and it some of it is like A/B testing of, uh, you know, how to present things. Some of it will be on pricing, and that's just trying to help them make more money. Um, but some of it is uh, like GPS, just trying to get you where you want to go. And so there are lots of opportunities. And they can be for good or for evil, um, but um, certainly the the my students here at the, the business school who go into the private sector have lots to do. And you have spoken a good deal about ethics and nudging for good. If you were to advise a company on establishing a code of ethics to guide the use of behavioral economics, what guidance would you share? Number one, transparency. Uh, number two, uh, the publicity principle. Um, you know, the the rule I've always used in class, and I didn't invent it, is if you are adopting some policy and you wouldn't want it published on the front page of the newspaper, don't do it. I, I think if, if every policy, if you do every policy with the assumption that it will become known, then 
I'm not saying this is a complete ethical guide, but it's a very good start. I know we're running towards the end of our time today, so I thought maybe we'd conclude by just asking you a little bit about the path forward, um, perhaps for yourself or also for the field at large. Um, is there anything that you would hope or envision that where the field would evolve in the next 10 years? Well, I think we have a lot more to learn about choice architecture. You know, when we were writing Nudge, when we started, we didn't have that phrase. It's kind of hard to imagine the book without, we had libertarian paternalism. Uh, I came, I coined the term choice architecture after rereading Don Norman's book, The Design of Everyday Things. And if you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. It has the best book cover ever. And it's a picture of a teapot with the handle and the spout on the same side. And if you can just imagine that and then imagine trying to use it, you'll get the joke. And so I read that book, and I remember calling Cass and saying, Cass, I have a phrase I think might be useful, choice architecture. And he had no idea what I was talking about and thought I was a little crazy. So there was a month or two of persuasion. But um, so, you know, when you come up with a phrase and, um, you know, invent a concept, you become the world's leading authority on this concept because you made it up. But we didn't, we didn't know anything. So, uh, you know, I think it was out, people were doing it. But things like Eric Johnson's new book, you know, it's a, a book about choice architecture. Um, I think there's a lot to learn. Um, the whole role of AI and algorithms um i i think uh, is obviously going to become increasingly important there's uh <coughs> some people have written about algorithm aversion um and people people don't Sometimes they don't like the idea that some decision is being made by a model. Even though we've known for 60 years in psychology that the simplest possible statistical model is better than the best expert at almost everything. So, you know, I... If I have a choice between my judgment and a model, I'm going to take, go for the model if I can. And uh, 
So I think that there, there's a lot to be done with helping people make better decisions, which uh, is really what the book was supposed to be about in the first place. Perhaps that's a, a great place to wrap up our conversation because I, I know we want to be respectful of your time. Um, but just wanted to thank you so much for for sharing your, your thoughts and, and experiences and ideas with us today. Uh, I guess just one other last quick question is, is there anywhere you'd like to, or any anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, or maybe um, a place they can go to learn more about some of the things that we've been talking about and some of the work that you, that you're doing? Uh, well, you know, there are, you know, there are millions of, uh, of, of books out there. So, um, but you know, I, I, let's end with the, the way I sign every book, including Eric's Nudge for Good, uh, which is meant as a plea. And um, so if you read the old one or the final edition, um, um, try to make the world a better place. Thanks for your time. Merci beaucoup. Okay, thank you very much. Merci, Eric. And uh, to be continued. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.